Welcome to the In This Issue podcast for DTB for February 2011, volume 49, number two. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And with me is Ike Iannaccio, DTB's editor. Hello. So anyone picking up this issue of DTB will notice some obvious changes. Um, and perhaps we should start by talking a little bit about both the appearance and also the content, because there are some differences from previous issues. Uh, I'll hand over to Ike to explain a little bit about the new content, but also perhaps start with some background to why we've made these changes. People who like DTB are very, very attached to it. They're very familiar with how it looks and so on, uh, and what it offers in terms of content. But uh, we've been aware for some time that um, there are some limitations in, in, in how we've been doing things. In particular, um, each issue has traditionally involved uh, an editorial plus three major reviews. And that's limited, really, the, the kind of topic range we can cover in any one issue. And uh, um, certainly the, the feedback we've had from readers and potential readers is that they would like more. They would like DTB's take on, on more issues. So we've, we've tried to accommodate that um, by the changes which I'll, I'll go on to describe. In addition, we've introduced, a, again, really responding to, to what we perceive are people's wants and needs, uh, a, a section on CME, CPD. For, for those people who are interested in or, or have to uh, show evidence of, of professional development, we'll now be able to use DTB articles and accompanying multiple choice questions as, as evidence of that. Um, so each issue will now contain a, a CPD section. In terms of broadening the range of topics, we've tried to address that by introducing a whole new section called DTB Select. Now that will be a, a standard feature in each issue. And what it will do is review such things as, as important new evidence, recently published guidance, safety warnings, the sorts of things really that, in theory at least, working healthcare professionals are meant to keep up to date with, but clearly often don't have time to in, in their busy working lives. So that the in-house team have been through recently published information, scanned useful sources, pulled together what they think is a broad collection of information that, that healthcare professionals ought, ought to know about, and then presented it back in, in a short and pithy way. Is, is that the basis of it? That's, that's much of the basis of it, yes. Um, the important uh, addition um, that I must make is that it isn't just a summary of all those things. What we've tried to do is, is, is yes, offer a, a succinct interpretation of, of the relevant information. But crucially, at the end, we offer a DTB comment. So uh, we try to direct people as to how, in our view, the, the relevant information affects clinical practice or not. So it might be that we're drawing attention to the particular advantages or all the other f features which make the relevant information welcome or helpful, or, or more negatively, there may be things that are wrong with it that we want to point out to people, bring to their attention, ensure that they take into account. Um, and, and we hope that people will find that helpful. So we don't just leave people hanging with a, a summary of what they could read anywhere else. It's actually giving a DTB comment and that added value at the end of it. Correct. And we hope that that approach will address some of the limitations which I was alluding to earlier. So let's now turn to the actual content of the February issue. Let's start with the editorial, which uh, is going by the heading 
polypillomania, David. What's this about? Well, the polypill um, has been around in both medical and the lay press for many years as an idea, really, of, of a way of managing or preventing cardiovascular disease by putting all or a whole series of ingredients of drugs that we know work well to prevent and manage cardiovascular disease into one simple formulation. So the patient would only need to take one pill, known as the polypill, in order to prevent or manage their cardiovascular condition. And every now and again, we get little flurries of activity where the polypill hits the news for a new trial or a piece of research that's been published. And at the start of 2011, in January, a new trial was launched, testing out some of the components of the polypill and trying it out in a new population of, of people. And what we've tried to do in the editorial is actually look at some of the evidence behind the polypill, uh, why it is such a, a popular topic, why it features on Facebook, on Twitter, in, in Wikipedia, and just explore some of the issues around whether the, the hype behind it is really backed up by practical application of whether this would offer a realistic solution for the management of cardiovascular disease, or whether actually it's, it's a bit of a, a, a pipe dream and, and is actually not going to achieve what, what people hope it will. Okay, thank you. The next thing to consider in this issue is the first, DTB Select. Now, as mentioned earlier, this covers a, a range of topics, um, in this case, 10 different topics, and clearly we haven't got uh, the space or time to go into all of those, but perhaps you could highlight a couple of the ones that we're covering, David. So just a couple of highlights from this month's Select. So one of the areas we look at is quinine for muscle cramps, a topic that's been around for many, many years, something that DTB has covered in the past. And here we look at a Cochrane systematic review that tries to put together what evidence there is and come out with a view on, on sort of the implications of the evidence. And what we do is take that and then compare it with what we've said in the past and come up with a conclusion of where we see quinine fitting for leg cramps. So that's an example of looking at a, a specific drug, old drugs it happens, and just seeing whether or how the position has changed on its use. What about other angles for the select? Is it all about drugs? No, it's not all about drugs. Uh, we feature on overviews of, of treatment as well. And one another area we've picked up for this particular month is uh, looking at the National Review or National Audit on heart failure. Uh, we look at what the implications are for the management of patients with this common and, and fairly unpleasant condition. Uh, the review itself looks at how well it's being managed primarily in, in secondary care, but we take this a bit further and look at the implications of, of both the audit itself, but where maybe there's some also some gaps or challenges for primary care in making sure that patients receive the optimal treatment, both from a therapeutic point of view, uh, but also from a care pathway perspective as well. Okay, thank you. Let's turn now to the first main review in this issue, and this is entitled Reducing NSAID-Induced Gastrointestinal Complications. Clearly the title gives away what the article is about, David, but perhaps you could fill in some more details about the approach we've taken. Yes, as you say, it's fairly self-explanatory from the title. You know, this is a topic that people may think, oh, I know all about this, I've read all about this before, this is a common issue. And I guess the fact that we're covering it again illustrates the fact that although it may be a common problem, uh, it still is a problem. Uh, and we know that there's a, a number of people hospitalised and number of deaths per year from them. So it is still a problem. So what we've tried to do throughout this article is go back to basics, look at the risk factors for complications from non-steroidals, look at the individual strategies that are available to 
clinicians, such as other other safer drugs to use, other protective measures you can take in order to minimise the, the the problems. Has the evidence changed in relation to uh, things like coxibs versus non-selective non-steroidals and try and get and bring it all together to say well there are some things that people can be doing the evidence gives us certain pointers in in certain directions and try and make it clear that uh, there are things that prescribers can do to minimize the complications from these drugs is the fact that as you say this is a perennial topic does that reflect the evidence base in the sense that there aren't clear-cut data as to what to do to prevent such complications? Yes, I think I think you're right. I think there is there's not a, a simple one-size answer to prevent the problems. I think it's making people aware of the limitations of the evidence that we currently have and point out that there are strategies people can consider. But as the title says, it's about reducing complications, not eliminating them. We haven't got a perfect solution to this. So it's about bringing to prescribers' attention the options that are available to them but also making them very aware that despite all this, there will still be um, the potential for harm and the need to keep patients who are on these drugs under constant review and make some judgments about whether it's worth carrying on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for some people. Or indeed starting them for others. Absolutely. The safest way of preventing a problem is not to use them in the first place. Thank you. Our second review covers a very different topic, Botox for chronic migraine. Why would you use Botox for chronic migraine, David? Yes, most people will be familiar with Botox for, I guess, cosmetic purposes um, and some other therapeutic indications. It's recently been licensed and now being marketed for its use in management of chronic migraine. And I wish I had an easy answer to say how it works, but I don't think we're quite clear on on the mechanism of action of where it works. What we do know is that in some trials, when it was being used for other indications, it became apparent that it did have this uh, benefit. So the company have had it licensed for the use in, in chronic migraine. And so we use this article to look at the evidence behind this, the, some of the trials, two of the, the main trials that support the, the licensing, try and examine whether, whether the evidence is actually there for its um, benefit in, in chronic migraine. And also I'll point out some of the issues around its use, not least that in order to have uh, the treatment, you need to have at least 31 injections into various parts of the head and neck. And therefore, you know, there are some practical concerns about how easy is this um, to, be, to be done in the first place. Interesting. Very. And just a reminder that both of the articles we've just discussed on uh, NSAID-induced complications and on Botox for migraine are accompanied by... Uh, CPD CME modules uh, in the, both the print issue and through BMJ Learning. To read any of the material we've discussed, or indeed any other DTB articles, please go to dtb.bmj.com. And just to reiterate, we're really keen to get your views on the new look and the content. So please feel free to send any such comments to dtb editor at bmjgroup.com.